Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Good afternoon. Happy Easter, you guys. Happy Resurrection Day. Welcome again to those of you who are, who are here and uh, to everyone who's streaming online. It's just good to be here, to, to be here together, to celebrate together the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every Sunday, every Sunday we celebrate the resurrection, but particularly on Easter Sunday, we're joining hands, we're locking arms with billions of Christians throughout the world and throughout history to celebrate a huge turning point in human history when God announced that there is healing for our brokenness, salvation for our sins, an end to all our sufferings and all our fears because Jesus has risen and he has risen indeed. And so if you would with me now, we're going to take a look at the account of the resurrection from the Gospel of Luke. Towards the beginning of the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke, uh, we'll be looking mostly uh, at chapter 24. We're going to look at four ways that the resurrection of Jesus gives us the hope that we all long for. But if you would with me, uh, let's pray and prepare our hearts to receive God's word. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to remember and to celebrate the glory and the beauty of the resurrection of your son, Jesus. Thank you for every person in this room, for every person watching online. We pray, God, that you would just ready and prepare our hearts right now to receive a good word of hope from you this morning. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So here's the first of four things uh, that the resurrection of Jesus gives us, gives us hope regarding. The first thing is a hope that surprises us in our suffering. A hope that surprises us in our suffering. Now, uh, at this point in, in Luke 24, we've seen that, that up till now, Jesus has been, uh, has been physically and literally murdered. He's been buried. He is presumed to be dead in his grave. 
And we're going to look a little bit just before uh, chapter 24 uh, at Luke 23, verse 50, just to give us some context. And I want you to begin reading with me uh, there. In Luke chapter 23, verse 50, it says, Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. Uh, this is speaking of uh, the decision that uh, his colleagues made to get, have put Jesus on trial, consider him guilty, and have him murdered on a cross. And so Joseph was one of those guys, but he wasn't like the other ones. Uh, he, he didn't want Jesus to be crucified. It says he had not consented to their decision in action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. Verse 52, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was a day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The woman who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Now, this is speaking of the women uh, disciples, followers of Jesus who were women. They saw Joseph doing this from afar, and, uh, and, and then they follow him. And it says that those women, they returned and prepared spices and ointments, uh, which is uh, what you would do to honor the dead back then. And then on the Sabbath day, it says they rested according to the commandment. Chapter 24, but on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, at early dawn, they, these female disciples, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. And we'll stop there for right now. Now, there are two things that I want you to see from this narrative in the scriptures that we just read. One, the disciples... They were, they were grieving, right? Like that's, that's clear. Joseph of Arimathea, he's disappointed. The women disciples, they're, they're grieving. They're sad. They, they come to honor uh, Jesus. Uh, the men who followed Jesus, especially like his close cohort, uh, the 12 disciples, uh, you'll notice none of them are there at the scene, right? Every single one of them had, had bailed. They've given up. They're mourning. Why? Because Jesus is dead. They, they thought him to be the Messiah, the one to come and save them from oppression, to save them from their enemies. But now he's dead. And they're grieving. They're mourning. They're sad because death, it hurts when someone dies, especially that you care for. There's something in us that says, man, that's not right. That's not right. This isn't how it should be, and it, it, it stings. That's biblical language. The Bible says that death has a sting. Now, these verses that we just read, they're sort of like a microcosm of all that is wrong in the universe. These verses tell us something that is true of the entire universe, that suffering should not exist in our world, that death does not feel right. There's something tragic about it. And that tragedy is amplified here in these verses when we read the description of what happened at the death of Jesus. 
I want you to imagine what must have been going on in Joseph of Arimathea's heart and in his mind as he took the body of Jesus down. As he holds Jesus' head with his hair matted down in sweat, dirt, and blood, the question that probably entered Joseph's own mind was, man, could this have really been the Messiah? Is this really how this ends? How did this happen? And the disciples, as they're watching this, they're probably thinking back to all the things that they witnessed Jesus do, all the things that they heard him say. So when Joseph pulled the nails out of his hands, they were thinking, like, man, these were the hands that healed others. These were the hands that helped the needy. And now they're pierced with holes. When he looked at his lips, thinking about how these lips spoke of hope and truth and love and the kingdom of God, but now they're dry, broken, cracked, scabbed over. When Joseph noticed Jesus' back just torn to shreds, from that cat of nine tails being flogged with a whip with pieces of bone and rock tied to the end of that whip. When Joseph saw Jesus' back just completely torn to shreds, this was the same back that they would stare at, that the crowds would stare at when Jesus would leave one town for another and disappear into the horizon on his missionary journeys. His knees that were broken and battered were the same knees that he retreated to to pray on for others, to wash the the, the knees that he knelt on to wash his disciples' feet. And now they're bruised. They're battered. Do you see the significance of this moment? And from the perspective of these disciples, from Joseph and these women, from their, their perspective, Good Friday was anything but good. You see, some of us, when we're faced with suffering and adversity, we try to pretend that suffering away. But it's just a matter of time where the wrongness of our fallen world just kind of hits you. You can't deny it. It lays you flat, and you feel its effects. That's where these disciples were at. They were feeling the effects of the fall and the death of Jesus. He had died. This was a moment that reminded them. It reminds us that our suffering, it hurts. That our fears and longings, they're real. Now, while we live in the now, we still long for what's not yet. That in a fallen world, cracked by sin, there will be death and decay, loneliness and depression, grave injustices, prideful prejudice, global pandemics, selfish betrayal, anger, tears, and broken hearts. But there's good news for those of us stuck in the waiting. The disciples thought that this was the end and that all hope was lost, but this is not the end. 
This is not the end, not for them and not for us. Hope was just around the corner. And so here's the second thing I want you to notice from these verses. <laughs> it's clear that none of them, none of them expected a resurrection. None of them did. You see, even in light of the fact that Jesus told them, like, if you destroy my body, I'm just going to rise it up in three days. You'd expect all his followers to be like outside of the tomb with their lawn chairs and their coolers on the hillside of Golgotha, like the streets of Pasadena for the Rose Parade. Remember parades when we used to have those? People save their spot for the Rose Parade, like for flowers, for flowers. But this is more than like floats of flowers. We're talking Jesus the Messiah rising from the grave, just like he said he would. And if they took Jesus for his word, if they truly understood what he came to do, the welcome wagon would be out there. But what do we see and said? His closest disciples, they're gone. They're mourning his death. These women brought spices and perfumes to anoint his dead body. It's clear that they expected him to stay dead. And here's the point. The point is that the resurrection was altogether surprising and unimaginable. It was unimaginable. It was impossible for them to believe it until they actually saw it. Now, it might help to know that Jesus wasn't the only guy in the Galilee region claiming to be the Messiah. There were like dozens of messianic movements uh, that, that rose up leading up to this time. And most of those revolutionaries, they were executed, like burned or crucified. You know what happened to their movements? Every single one of them dissolved after the leader died, which kind of makes sense, right? Like some guy claims to be the Messiah. He dies, and you're like, well, call it a day, Right? Probably not the Messiah. But Jesus is the only movement that survived, continued to survive. It not only survived, it exploded. It grew from 25,000 followers in the first couple decades to 25 million in the first couple centuries, all while being illegal in the Roman Empire. Like, that's wild. Spread like wildfire. And the world has never been the same ever since. Christianity brought new beliefs about death and the afterlife, but it also gave the whole world new beliefs on how to live in the here and now with human dignity and human rights, loving your neighbor and your enemy, things that we enjoy and take for granted. They're all based on the teachings of Jesus and the implications of his resurrection. The world has literally never been the same ever since. And just to be clear and honest, the doctrine of the resurrection has not been without its critics and skeptics throughout the centuries, right? Like People can't deny the historic impact of Jesus' resurrection. You just can't. But they do try to deny that it really did happen pawn it off or try to explain it like it's a legend because it's so surprising. It's so unimaginable. Some of you believe in God, but you have a hard time with the resurrection. But if you concede, if you acquiesce and say, look, I, I can believe that there's a God. If there is a God who created life, would the resurrection be all that impossible? 
Would it be all that impossible? Like, why is it any less possible for God to resurrect life than create it? To create something out of nothing, which no one else can do, out from complete nothing, just create creation. How could he do that and not reverse what has been done, like in the resurrection? I think the reason some people are cool with believing in God but not the resurrection is that if the resurrection of Jesus is real and true, then you have to reckon with the fact that Jesus is God's son, that his word matters, and therefore he has a claim on your life. And we don't like that. We don't want anyone to have a claim on our life, and so we come up with reasons to not believe in the resurrection. Like literally, the most, the most common popular theories that skeptics and scholars have come up with are, are like there's one that Jesus had a stunt double, right? That he switched places with somebody like right before he went to the cross. Like who's going to sign up for that? Right, And then there's another theory called the swoon theory that Jesus didn't actually die, uh, but he just sort of passed out and everyone else was just like, oops, made a mistake, you know, uh, and was willing to die for this, this oopsie that they made. There's one theory that the disciples just made up the whole story to start a movement. And could they have? I mean, if that was the case, probably wouldn't have recorded themselves in the scriptures as cowards and abandoners. Plus, history tells, each, tells us that each of his disciples were killed and martyred for preaching the resurrection. History tells us that, and I'm not saying Christian history, like secular history tells us that these early followers of Jesus were killed and martyred for preaching that they were witnesses to the resurrection. Rarely will someone die for what they believe in. More rare is somebody dying for what you don't believe. Do you want to know how these disciples went from unmotivated cowards to resilient heroes of the early church? What got them all galvanized and ready to roll, risking their lives by preaching this gospel and planting churches when just a day earlier they were defectors of the cause? It's because they witnessed something. They were witnesses of the resurrection. They were witnesses of something of such great magnitude, so earth-shattering that it changed them. That's what the resurrection does. You see, that's the only rational explanation for the sweeping movement of Christianity in the first century, even while under persecution, is that it really happened. Those other theories are absurd in light of what we know and can see to be rationally true, that the resurrection happened. And it surprised them. It surprised these disciples in the midst of their suffering. And it gave them a strength and a hope that no amount of suffering or torment or death could take away. How many of you guys know of the uh, uh, famous atheist Christopher Hitchens? Christopher Hitchens uh, wrote some... <coughs> Uh, snarky books about faith and Christianity. Uh, I think his most popular one's called God is Not Great. Uh, but uh, Christopher Hitchens, uh, he's 
passed away like a, a few years ago. Um, <clears throat> but over the last few decades, uh, he went around like just uh, on these speaking and, and writing tours uh, to uh, debate people of faith. And his publicist uh, approached a man by the name of Larry Taunton. Uh, to arrange a series of debates. Larry ran an apologetics ministry. Uh, and so they contacted Larry and, and said, like, hey, like, we want some of your best guys to, to come, like, debate us, you know? Uh, and uh, over the years, uh, Chris Hitchens and Larry Taunton developed this really unlikely friendship. After Hitchens was diagnosed with cancer, uh, these two friends, they took a couple road trips across America. And in a memoir about their friendship, Larry Taunton describes this conversation that the two of them had on one of those trips. Hitchens in the car, I, I love just picturing this, uh, if you've ever seen a debate with him, but Hitchens is like in the car with a Bible open, and he's reading from the Gospel of John. He starts in the middle of the Gospel of John, and he just starts reading it out loud, dialoguing with his Christian friend about what he's reading. And then he gets to the 20th chapter on the resurrection, and his face lights up, and he says, hey, I know this story too. I remember this one. And Larry Taunton says, yeah, that's a great chapter. Those are great verses. And Hitchens, with a little bit of sarcasm, goes, dost thou believest this verse, Larry? And... Uh, and Larry Taunton responds, well, I do, of course, like, but you knew that. The question is, dost thou believe this verse, Chris Hitchens? And Hitch, he, he hesitates for a moment, and then he speaks with surprising transparency, and he says, you know, I'll admit that it is not without appeal to a dying man. See, in the resurrection... We have a picture of hope in the face of our greatest enemy. In the erection, we see that our great enemy, death, has been defeated. And if we can see that death has been defeated, then we can have hope that all that is wrong and broken in the world is just a drop in the bucket compared to the ocean of God's glory on display in the resurrection of Jesus. That this world is not the end. It will be made new. This life is not the end. You will be resurrected. You will be made new. And so we have a hope in the resurrection that surprises us in our suffering. Number two, we also have a hope in the resurrection that saves us in our sinfulness. A hope that saves us in our sinfulness. Read verse two with me now. It says they found the stole rolled away from the tomb. And really quick, the, what's talking about here is tombs used to be uh, like this big open, uh, like they dug this hole into, into a cave like on the side of a, of a mountain or a rock. Uh, and what they would do is that they would uh, create this, uh, almost like this divot that would go across uh, in front of the hole. And they would take this large circular disc uh, like this tall. Uh, and they would take a couple guys to like roll it forward uh, until it, it landed in the center of that ditch covering the hole. And you would need a couple guys to like roll it back out. Um, and so when they found the stole, stone rolled away from the tomb, 
they were surprised by that. It says, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, to us, when we're reading this, if you're a Christian and you're reading this part of the story, you're like on the edge of your seats, right? You're like, this is the moment. They're going to find out. He's alive. He's risen. But that's not what these women were feeling. Remember, they're not expecting to see anything other than a dead corpse here. They're mourning. They're upset. They're probably bummed out that Jesus isn't the Messiah that they assumed him to be. But they still loved him and wanted to honor him. And walking up to his tomb and finding the stole rolled away is kind of like walking to your dead, dead friend's grave and finding that somebody else has, has dug it up, right? Like, you'd be upset. You'd be outraged. You'd have so many questions. And Luke here, he says that they were perplexed. He says that they were perplexed. Uh, this Greek word there in verse 4 is diaporeo, uh, which means like being at a complete loss uh, to yourself. I want you to read what he says there in verse 4. It says, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Uh, now, now uh, if you read the other gospel accounts, you know that these, are, these messengers are, are angels sent from God to deliver a message to these women. And so these two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, speaking of angels. In verse 5 it says, And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. Jesus is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Now, what are the angels saying here? What are they saying here? These women are perplexed. They're at a complete loss. They're upset, and the angels say, no, Jesus is risen. Don't be upset. Don't be at a loss. Jesus is risen. But do you know why you didn't expect this? Why you're at a loss? They say you didn't really understand or anticipate the resurrection because you never really understood his death. That's what they meant when they said, when they, when they said remember what he taught you when you said that he must die. Remember how he told you that. Remember when he said he must die. I want you to look here in verse 7 here. Uh, do you notice that word must there in verse 7? Right there, look at it. That word is tether is the tethering point for the whole rest of the sentence. He must be delivered. He must suffer. He must die. He must be raised. Now, what does it mean that he, he had to do these things? Why is it that he must do these things? He had to do these things because his death wasn't just to die for us as an example of love but as an act of love because we are too sinful and guilty and lost to make our way back into God's presence. You see, every single one of us is trying to make up for this brokenness that we feel inside, this brokenness we have within that the Bible calls sin. And we try to make up for it by our own efforts. We think, hey, if I just get that promotion, if I just get that house, if I just fix this one thing or if I have more of that thing, we find ourselves like clawing for things that never satisfy. 
Like we've got these little dinosaur arms and we just can't, can't grab it, right? And even if we do grab it, it's like never enough. It's never enough. <laughs> you see, apart from God, who we were made for, we will never be at rest. The philosopher Blaise Pascal once said that there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God, the creator, made known through Jesus. I love that. You see, the greatest barrier that we have to being what we were made to be, to experience the, the peace, hope, and love that comes from being where we're supposed to be in the presence of God is our sin and rebellion against our maker. See, but the cross, the cross of Jesus shows us the price of our sin. The cross of Jesus shows us the price of sin. That the most perfect man to ever live had to experience death in full force, not just physically, but spiritually. Jesus not only suffered pain and death physically, he absorbed the righteous wrath of God against sin through his death on the cross. You know what the resurrection shows us? It shows us that our debt has been paid in full. That's the good news of the resurrection. You don't have to do anything. You bring nothing to God's throne of grace except your very need for it. That's why we call this the gospel. The gospel literally means good news. It's not good advice. It's not a good example. It's good news about what God has done in Jesus for sinners like me and like you. For the world to make it new. And we just get to rest in that. You see, the resurrection gives us a hope that saves because we cannot save ourselves. But notice the story doesn't end there. The followers of Jesus don't just stick around and marvel at an empty tomb. No, they are sent into the world with a mission and a purpose. And so that's point number three. Point number three, the resurrection gives us a hope that sends us with a real purpose or mission. The resurrection gives us a hope that sends us with a real purpose or mission. Read in verse 8 through 12 with me. It says, They remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. That was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other woman with them, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. You see, these women, they, 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 they suddenly become ambassadors of the kingdom. That's significant. That's significant because in that day, not too unlike our day, women are not always treated with the dignity that they deserve. They were marginalized, they were ignored to the point to where their testimony wasn't even admissible in a court of law in the ancient Near East back in the first century. Yet, the living God, the living God shows love for these women and shows the importance of their role in his world that he made uh, by appointing them to be ambassadors to the apostles. 
You see, as the kingdom of God breaks into human history, as God is calling sinners back to himself through Jesus, as he begins making all things new, God's sovereign hand commissions these women to be the ones to discover the empty tomb. And he gives them a new mission, a new purpose, a new identity as ambassadors of his kingdom. I want you to notice here that the empty tomb isn't just a memorial that they sit at, but it's a mission that they're sent on. You see, the empty tomb isn't a memorial for us to sit at. It's a mission that we are sent on. And so like these women, those of us who who know the risen Jesus have the joy and privilege of sharing that good news to the weary and lost world that God has called us into. The resurrection is proof that Jesus brings down hope to us. The surprising, saving resurrection of Jesus is the song that we've all longed to hear. It's the chapter that we've all longed to be written. Jesus Christ has lived. He's been crucified in our place for our sins, but now he's risen. And he's risen indeed. And so now, empowered by the Spirit of God, we get to be ambassadors, missionaries of that resurrection hope in a world that desperately needs it. I want you to read how N.T. Wright, the New Testament scholar, how he just eloquently puts this point. He says, our task as image-bearing, God-loving, Christ-shaped, Spirit-filled Christians following Christ and shaping our world is to announce redemption to the world that has discovered its fallenness, to announce healing to the world that has discovered its fallenness, to announce healing to the world that has discovered its, its, its brokenness, to proclaim love and trust to the world that knows only exploitation, fear, and suspicion. That's our high calling, church. We get to be ambassadors of that good news. This leads us into our last and final point, that the resurrection also gives us a hope that reshapes us with a hopeful future. A hope that reshapes us with a hopeful future. Our last verse, verse 12, says, But Peter rose and he ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what happened. Now, this is noteworthy, because if you know anything about Peter's story, you know that he messed up quite a bit. Peter was the guy who swore to Jesus that he would never deny him. Jesus said, you know, at one point, When I'm going to need you the most, after I'm betrayed, every single one of you here at the Last Supper, every single one of you is going to to abandon and deny me. And Peter swore that that he would never do that. Jesus was like, Jesus confronts Peter and he says, you know what? Before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Almost giving him like an alarm clock, right? Like, hey, Peter, you know, before the alarm goes off, you're actually going to deny me three times. And Peter's like, 
Never. No way. I'm not going to do that. That's not true. I would, I would never do that. Sure enough, when Jesus gets arrested, people are trying to figure out who his followers were. And people start coming up to Peter and say, hey, aren't you one of his guys? Aren't you one of his homies? Like, aren't you one of his followers? And every single time, Peter's like, no, that's not me. Three times this happens. Three times this happens. And then when that rooster crowed, the Bible says Peter runs away and he cries bitterly. He cries bitterly. That's Bible speak for saying that he cried with guilt, with shame, with despondency. But what happens to Peter after the resurrection? What happens when he hears the first word from those women about the hope of the resurrection? He runs. He runs to the empty tomb. He sees it empty. He sees the linen cloths just lying there, and he marvels. Peter would go on to reunite with the risen Jesus. And when he reunites with Jesus, the Bible says that Peter received grace and forgiveness, not only for the sin of his denial, but for every other act of rebellion that ever existed in Peter's heart and every act of rebellion that would exist. Peter, empowered by that grace, would end up preaching the first sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when the first church was born after the resurrection. He would go on from there to plant church after church after church, training pastor after pastor, and writing books of the Bible like First and Second Peter. You know what? I love that that's his story. I love that that's his story. Because that could be any one of us. I love that Peter can go from being a denier of Jesus to an apostolic church planter. This is the transforming power of God's grace. Why? Because the resurrection it changes everything. It changes everything. For Peter, it meant, meant that guilt and shame lay no more claim on him. I love these words from C.S. Lewis. When he said, the New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He, Jesus, is the first fruits or the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. And everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has opened. Man, see, this, this, this is what it means to place your hope in the resurrection. You realize that the resurrection changes everything. Changes everything about who you are. Changes everything about who you were. Changes everything about who you're going to be. And it changes everything about where the world is headed. 
You see, to place your hope in the resurrection means you're surprised by its reality. You're saved by its power. And you're sent with a purpose and a mission to participate with God in his mission in the world. Jesus is risen. I want you to ask yourself this question. Do you know that? Do you know that? And if you know that, will you now live like it? Will you live like it? Maybe you came here this morning and you're like, man, that sounds good. And I really want in on that. But I've got so much that I'm ashamed of. Don't miss the good news. (laughs) Don't miss the good news that you can't earn your salvation. You can only receive it. And because Jesus went to the cross and because he rose from the grave, it's paid and offered freely to you. The resurrection is evidence that what Jesus did on the cross by taking on our sins and absorbing God's wrath in our place was enough. It was enough. And so he rose. And for those who merely repent and believe, there is now no condemnation in Jesus Christ. None. Maybe you're here or tuning in as a believer in Christ. But you need to be surprised again. Maybe surprised again for the first time in a long time by how truly good and beautiful the resurrection really is. That because Jesus is alive, you know that God has saved you to himself. He sets you apart for the great mission of pushing back all that is dark in the world and polluting it with the hope of new life. You get to be an instrument of God's grace as Jesus continues his work of renewing all things. That's what we're celebrating. More than anything, more than anything else, we're celebrating that cosmic reality. More than springtime, more than eggs, more than the fact that this is the time our skin starts to change color, we're celebrating something so much more important. That Jesus came from the throne of God to a dirty manger in a small town to live and die in our place and to rise from the grave defeating evil, sin, and death, purchasing our souls, adopting us into his family, and riding us into his story, securing for us a hope that is deep, a hope that lasts and a hope that transcends our suffering and changes everything. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church.
There's no dot com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.